we've been following through a series on the Psalms uh, throughout November. And so as we close out this month and transition into the season of Advent, uh, I wanted to look at parts of two more Psalms here. This is Psalm 137, verses 1 through 6, and then Psalm 42, again, verses 1 through 6. Will you join me in reading God's word? By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And then turning to Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. May God add his blessing to his word. You know, traditions are important. Our culture increasingly looks to what's new, reinventing and reimagining. But what is old can also have a powerful role, especially at the holidays. Whether that's a grandfather's favorite hymn or a particular ritual that takes place at home, these traditions, these rituals, build feelings of togetherness and stability. In a 2017 article, anthropology professor Dimitri Sigalatis wrote, from reciting blessings to raising a glass to make a toast, holiday traditions are replete with rituals. Laboratory experiments and field studies show that the structured and repetitive actions involved in such rituals can act as a buffer against anxiety by making our world a more predictable place. Well, laboratory experiments and field studies aside, I was blessed to have very predictable holiday traditions as a child. I grew up in the house my father grew up in, so life, including Christmas, was rooted in history. Every year, a few days before Christmas, we'd go to get a tree and bring it home in the back of the pickup truck. And every year, only after setting it up, would we discover that it looked a lot more like Charlie Brown's tree than the majestic fir that we saw on the lot. So we'd rotate the bald spot into the corner. And those old strings of big bulbs would get so hot, we could only keep them on for an hour or so at a time. Any more than that, and the tree would spontaneously combust or at least that's what we were told. On Christmas Eve, we'd go to church for the candlelight service and familiar carols. Then we'd come home by way of Winterwood Drive. It was the rich street in Meridian, 
And every year they had what seemed to us like an elaborate light display on nearly every house. So we'd cruise down the street and back with the headlights off, ooing and aahing at the lights. As we headed out, I remember my dad would always stop and place something in the donation box that was there for Children's Hospital. It was only as I got older that I realized he was remembering one Christmas when he and my mom were in that hospital's waiting room when they got the word that my baby sister's cancer surgery was successful. When we got home, my sister and I would put out cookies and milk before we hustled off to bed, while my grandmother put a candle in the kitchen sink and left it to burn all night. Then we got up at 6 a.m. and jumped onto my grandparents' bladders in the guest room. We waited for the grown-ups to get ready, and then we had the obligatory photo of us kids sitting on the landing at the top of the stairs. Coming down those stairs and seeing the tree in the living room, the presence around it was always so magical. Smelling the aroma of the tree and of the sticky bread my mom had put in the oven just before we came downstairs as we tore into those presents. Now, maybe your Christmases weren't like that. Maybe you moved often and had to make new traditions every couple of years. Maybe there was an annual argument about whether you would be spending Christmas with mom or dad. Maybe holidays meant fewer warm fuzzies and more dread of your racist Uncle Frank. Well, regardless, we crave tradition. We want the rhythm and the comfort and the grounding that traditions provide. God knows this, of course. He made us. So he set up rituals for Israel. They had the daily sacrifices. They had the Sabbath and the new moons. They had the great feasts, Passover and Pentecost and booths. These gave a rhythm to the weeks and to the years. And they pointed Israel toward their God and toward all that he had done for them. Whether we've had long-standing traditions or not, one thing remains true, though. Whatever traditions we have, they're going to change. I went off to college, and I met this girl there. In my senior year, she invited me to go down to Texas to spend Christmas with her family. And you know what? They did Christmas differently. They had an artificial tree. They opened their gifts on Christmas Eve and they didn't have sticky buns. But I got used to it. Year after year, their traditions became my traditions too. And then Ginger and I went to China for three years. And then we came back home. And then we had kids of our own, and then I became a pastor and couldn't take off at Christmas to go down to Texas. And so our traditions have changed again and again. Each time that happens, the, the anxiety creeps in. I think many of us, most of us, are feeling that this year. In this time of COVID, not many of us had a normal Thanksgiving last week. Yes, we might not have had to deal with racist Uncle Frank, but all of us missed something. All of us probably missed someone. Wilson got the idea that we should Skype my mom for Thanksgiving dinner, so we did. We set up my laptop at our table, and she propped up her iPad on hers, and we had our feast together, sort of. It wasn't the same. 
and it made passing the gravy kind of difficult, but it was something. And Christmas, well, I think we all know that Christmas is going to be very different too. Christmas music is already all around us, but somehow I'll be home for Christmas sounds even more melancholy this year. Instead of easing anxiety, instead of helping to make the world a more predictable place, thinking of the holidays this year just seems to increase our anxiety. So what do we do? Well, as we look into these psalms and into God's word, I see three things that we should keep in mind this Advent season. They're simple, but I think they're worth remembering. Disappointment is real. Truth is essential. And hope, hope is alive. One of the things you quickly realize reading through the Psalms is that the writers often express gut-wrenching disappointment. Just look at Psalm 137. The people were in exile, and they felt taunted by their captors. Hey, sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. What, not feeling so festive? Where's your God now? Maybe you feel that way today. Your table was smaller for Thanksgiving. You know that there are people you're not going to see at Christmas. This week, we had hoped to begin Advent together in person, but here we are, and there you are. And as change has piled on top of change this year, Christmas just doesn't seem like it's going to be the same. Anxiety and depression can swoop in and, here, sing us a Christmas carol. La, 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 nope. One of the things we should take from the Psalms is that it's okay to mourn. Some of us are mourning loved ones this year. Some are mourning the loss of a job. Some are mourning school, school the way it should be. Some are mourning traditions that can't be maintained, expectations that won't be met, and that's okay. The Psalms show us that disappointment is real and we shouldn't pretend that it isn't. We shouldn't just put on a mask and pretend that everything is normal. Not that putting a mask on seems normal at all this year, but, but it's okay to cry. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. My tears have been my food day and night. I want us to see the honesty here. They're disappointed. They're angry. They're absolutely heartbroken. And they don't know what to do. But they are honest with God about how they're feeling. Are you honest with God? He already knows how you feel, so trying to keep it bottled up from him doesn't accomplish anything except making you stew in all of that darkness. So talk with him about what you're going through. Release it to him. But don't stop there. Disappointment is real, but the Bible also reminds us that truth is essential. Honesty about our emotions is important, but a toddler is very honest about her emotions, and that alone doesn't accomplish anything more than a tantrum. Truth is essential. One of the key truths that Israel needed to grapple with was their sin. The fact that 
their exile was really their own fault. Now, Babylon went above and beyond, attacking with unconscionable cruelty, and they would be punished for that. But Babylon's invasion and taking the people of God into exile was, at its core, punishment for Israel's abandonment of God. According to tradition, the prophet Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations after the fall of Jerusalem. It opens with these words. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. Jeremiah says, you, you mourn for the festivals, you mourn for Zion, and Zion mourns for you. But why did all of this happen? The multitude of your transgressions. You abandoned the Lord, you went after other gods, you failed to treat one another the way I told you to. Seventy years later, people would return to the land. They would begin to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And the people from the town of Bethel sent a delegation to the priests. You see, for 70 years, they had been fasting to remember the siege of Jerusalem. They fasted to remember the day the city fell. They fasted to remember the day the temple was destroyed. And they wanted to know, do, do we still have to do that? Now that we're back in the land, should we still fast at those times? The prophet Zechariah overheard them, and God gave him a message for the people. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. God says, in essence, for these 70 years when you fasted, were you reflecting on your sin? Were you, were you mourning for me and for your separation from me? Did it sink in that all of this was because you turned away from me, that you didn't live in righteousness, that you oppressed the weak, the immigrant, and the poor? Or were you reflecting on all of the stuff that you lost? Were you sad for the houses and the fields and the food and the pretty things? Were you really just mourning for yourself? Now, I'm not saying that our circumstances this year are, are just because of something that you or I has done, certainly not. But as we're honest with our disappointment, 
it's also important for us to take some time of reflection. What exactly am I mourning? Am I mourning traditions which are always changing anyway? Am I drawing my stability and my peace from rituals or from the God those rituals should be pointing toward? Have I been walking with God through difficulty? Or has difficulty walked me away from him? As Pastor Jeff has reminded us in these past weeks, how is God calling us individually, as a church, as a nation, to repentance during this time? In addition to the truth of our sin, though, we need to remember the truth that God is with us, Emmanuel, and he has a plan. The prophet Zephaniah was a contemporary of Jeremiah's. He spoke to the exiles with these words from God. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Israel, God is with you. He loves you. And he will gather you together again. He will deal with your sin. He will change your shame into praise. He will enact justice. He is mighty to save. And we share in that promise. Because while Israel did return from exile, they returned as a minor backwater province in the Persian Empire. The whole of Judea at that time was no bigger than Cuyahoga County. It was hardly renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. But Jesus. But Jesus came into that backwater province, by, by that time part of the mighty Roman Empire, to deal with sin and to give hope for the future. And that's the third thing I want us to see today. Yes, disappointment is real. Yes, truth is essential. But above all else, hope is alive. In Psalm 42, the writer faces his disappointment. He's honest with God. He longs for God. And he remembers. What changes his perspective begins with remembering the past. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Remembering the traditions of the past and God's faithfulness through them is a foundation of hope. And as Pastor Jeff reminded us just last week, we should find time to remember God's faithfulness and to be thankful, especially in a season like this. 
I pray that you found time to do that last week. And it's also important that we live today set apart in hope. God has always called his people to live lives that were set apart to him. We usually translate the Hebrew word as holy. And we need to remember that our hope should make a difference in our lives. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to break free from the influence of the world. He said, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We need to clean out the leaven, the yeast, the sin, the attitudes, the idols that hold on to our lives. And times of change, difficult as they are, can provide those moments of clarity. Why am I reacting this way? Why is that thing so important to me? Why do I have these traditions? And do they point me toward God or toward the world? How is God calling me to set myself apart to him in the middle of all of this? Jeremiah challenged the exiles to do just that in this famous passage. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Yes, you're mourning, God says, and that's appropriate. But look around. I'm calling you beyond yourselves. You're going through a rough time right now, and yes, part of that's your own fault. But pray for your captors. Pray for your enemies. Reflect my love and my hope in that place, in this time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew something about disappointment and hardship. He escaped from Nazi Germany only to feel very strongly that he needed to return to encourage the church there. So he did, and he was arrested, and he was eventually executed. 
While in prison in November 1943, he realized that his home for Christmas was going to be that cold cell. And in that cell, he wrote these words. A prison cell like this is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, hopes, does this or that, ultimately negligible things. The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. Christ is coming to rescue us from the prisons of our existence, from anxiety, from guilt, from loneliness. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Ultimately, that is the message of Advent. You see, we often think of Advent as looking back to Jesus' birth, and that's true. But the greater focus of Advent is looking forward to his second coming. A year and a half after Bonhoeffer wrote those words, the greatest amphibious invasion of all time took place on the beaches of Normandy. That event, D-Day, sealed the fate of Nazi Germany. Historians see that moment as the beginning of the end for Hitler, even though there was more than a year of hard fighting still ahead. In the spiritual realm, Jesus' birth on that silent night in that backwater province of the Roman Empire was D-Day. It was the beginning of the end for Satan and for all that is evil and dark in this world. But Satan isn't giving up without a fight. He's throwing everything he can at us and making the most of this fallen world to spit at the God who loves us. And so we face sickness and storms and turmoil and death. But we live in hope because hope was born that night. And he will return to wipe away every tear and to dwell with us forever. The message of Advent is that our disappointment is real and God sees it. The message of Advent is that truth is essential because our only way forward is to admit the truth about our sin and the truth that God has made a way to deal with it through the cross of Jesus. And the message of Advent is that hope is alive. That because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can be set free to live like him. And we can live in the confident hope that he is coming back. You and I might not be home for Christmas. But the message of Advent is that God has given us a home for Christmas. So we can live in hope. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that in the midst of trying times, in the midst of our disappointment, you know our every thought. You know what we are feeling. And you care. care enough to come into this world to deal with our sin 
to deal with the way that we have messed everything up. And that through the cross you've made a way that we can be restored to relationship with you. God, I thank you that as we look at the history of the way you've interacted with your people, the way that you are here with us, that you can transform our lives, we thank you that in the way that we can look forward to your returning again, that we can live in hope. So God, this Advent, may we remember your Advent 2,000 years ago. May we remember your Advent here with us. May we remember your Advent yet to come, when you will make all things new and wipe away every tear. O come, O come, Emmanuel.